This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Great to be with you today. If we haven't met, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here, and I just want to say thanks for being here. It's a joy to uh, worship together this morning. And uh, we're working through, in our sermon series, the book of Colossians. And so today we're going to be in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, I would recommend grabbing one. There's one under the seat in front of you. And uh, you can grab that and turn to page 572 and you'll be able to find out where we are in Colossians chapter 3. Um, And if you don't own a Bible, then you just take that one as a gift. Just take that one with you. We'd love for you to have a Bible. We'll just replace it uh, under the seat. No problem. We got more where that one came from. So uh, today I want to talk about the secret of Christian growth, which sounds a little bit like a seminar that's trying to link you into something, but it's a secret. I'm saying it's a secret because it's something that it's an open secret. It's something that we often don't think about. uh, And yet it's the entire foundation of growth, according to the passage we're going to read today. So last week, here's what we looked at. Let me just catch you up because uh, the chapter three, where it starts at chapter three, that's a, uh, uh, that, that wasn't in the original. That's added later to help us sort of uh, sort through and find places in the letter. Um, so really, there's no break in the flow of thought that from Paul has here from the thoughts before. And what we saw last week in his thoughts before, we looked at the wrong way the wrong ways to try and be godly. There were some false teachers in uh, the Colossae area where this church was, that this letter, this is a letter written to a church of new Christians, and there were some false teachers that were advocating several ways to grow in godliness. One was legalism. That is, they said, if you want to grow as a Christian, you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to obey certain Old Testament laws, and you also need to kind of keep these festivals. And so basically it was like, if you want to grow, you have to do certain things to make yourself acceptable to God. Uh, It's Jesus and his work on the cross, and it's something else. And Paul says, no, no, it's not. They were also, some of them saying, well, if you really want to grow, you have to have mystical experiences. Uh, You have to have visions, like visions of angels, they were saying, and going on and on about their visions. And Paul says, no, you do not need Jesus plus visions of angels or angels as intermediaries to grow. Some of them were also advocating asceticism. Asceticism is when you are harsh, when you treat yourself or in particular your body harshly. Um, for God. And so it's kind of, it might be like extreme fasting or something like this. It, it could be something where you say, um, you know, the idea is if you add up enough physical negatives, r- restrictions upon your body, then you ultimately get a spiritual positive. And he's saying that's not true. So it's not legalism. It's not mysticism. It's not asceticism. And the reason is, is he said each of those are built up uh, on self-promotion, self-made religion, he says in verse 23. So if growth isn't about our embracing a bunch of new rules that we create or find perhaps in, in, in the Old Testament and apply today for our salvation, or if it's not about these practices or these visions that we come up with, what is Christian growth about? 
If it's not that, how do we grow as Christians? And this is what he addresses in chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. So let's listen to this passage. This is God's word. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge, uh, in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that your word reveals to us Jesus Christ. Lord, you reveal Christ to us throughout your scripture, but in this text it is abundantly clear that Jesus is risen that Jesus reigns and that we are raised with him. And so we pray today, Lord, that uh, now that we have been raised with Christ into a new life, that you would give us open ears and open hearts, that your spirit who dwells within us would speak to us from your word today and that, that our perspective might be changed. Lord, give us a new perspective from your word on what it means to follow you and to live a life that is growing in Christ. We pray in his name, amen. So last week, again, we saw you can't grow by new rules, mystical experiences, or harsh restrictions to the body. The only way you grow, we just read, is by dying. It's by dying with Christ and being raised with Christ. It is about living a new reality. The only way we grow is by realizing that we live a new reality now that's not based on our works, but is based on our union with Jesus Christ. We're no longer living under the old world with old thinking and old practices which led to death, but we are now living a new identity in Christ. If you were a Christian, this happened to you when you were converted. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 20 says, if with Christ you died, which we did. Uh, Chapter 3, which we just read, chapter 3, 3, chapter 3, verse 3 says, for you have died. So when you become a, a believer in Christ, you die to sin, you die to the powers demonic powers, you die with Christ. And then verse one of chapter three says, if you've been raised with Christ, you are then raised to new life in Jesus. So that happens when we believe and he comes to dwell in us. 
So the language that's used throughout the New Testament is that we are in Christ. So we identify with him. Our identity is in him. We are buried with him. We are raised with him to walk in new life. That's what baptism uh, represents, that we have experienced new life in Christ. And so the way we grow as Christians is in union with Christ, recognizing, understanding, and applying our union with Christ makes all the difference. We don't need self-made religion to grow. So what I think this passage teaches is that the secret of growing as a Christian is being who you already are in Christ. That's the key. It is being who you already are in Christ. Now, chapter, uh, verse 9 that we just read really points this out. It really points out the difference in what God says to us in this passage and what the false teachers were saying. So look at verse 9. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Uh, what is he saying? He's saying, don't lie, that's a command. But the why of not lying is what's so different. Why? Because that's your old life and you're dead to lying. You are dead to sin. So what you need to do is live in your new identity. What is that? Your new self. You've put on the new self with its practices. You've put on the new self. You're being renewed in the knowledge of your creator. So don't live, don't live the dead life. That's, he's saying that is not who you are. It's all about who is our identity in. Is our identity in the old way of living, which is, uh, which is trying to put to death sin by just trying hard, or is it in the new way of living, which is raised with Christ, living in resurrection power, seated with Christ in the heavenlies is what he says here. Um, you've risen with him. So he's calling us to our identity. Obedience to God comes from living out of our new identity, which we received at conversion when we died and rose with Christ. Your legal position has changed. Jesus declares you righteous. The Father declares you righteous because of what Christ did for you in uh, dying and rising. So once you believe, we sang about that today. I don't want my own righteousness. I want his righteousness, which is by faith. So God credits you with Christ's righteousness when you believe. Now growing in Christ is beginning to live in that legal position. It's beginning to live relationally in what's true legally. It's becoming what Christ has declared you already to be. Growing is the secret of growing is being who you already are in Christ. We must live out our identity. Uh, and the identity moves from legal to, it's always legally true, but relationally true for us as well. One author said, you know, um, a new wife, somebody, if a new, there's a newly married couple, the new wife doesn't, uh, he said, keep a marriage license with her at all times so that she can just look and say, yes, it's true, it's true, it's true, and base her marriage uh, merely on the license itself. Uh, I'm legally married, I'm legally married. I, you would think that odd if, if that happened, but he said this, he wrote, what turns a legal truth into a living one is living in that new relationship. It's a product of living out of your new identity, he said. So the marriage grows not just 
uh, by staring at the legal truth of the license, but by communing with your spouse, growing with your spouse, interacting with your spouse, living out what is legally true in your relationship. And the same is true with our relationship with Christ. So how can we live out this new identity that we have in Christ? How can we be who we already are? Well, I think there's three, three ideas that are in the text we just read. The first one is we seek Christ. We seek Christ. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. When we think of growth and holiness, often we think about what the false teachers were teaching last week. We often think about what do I need to avoid? We start with what do I need to avoid, whereas the Bible starts with who do you need to seek? Whom do you need to seek? Um, It starts in a very different place. This passage starts with, you've been raised with him, so seek him in the things above where he is. It goes on in verse 2 and says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now, this could be a little confusing. Set your mind on spiritual things above or set your mind on things above where Christ is, not on earthly things. What he's not saying, uh, uh, this is not a Gnostic philosophy. Gnosticism was a philosophy that was common in the, in the day of the early church, and you see it appearing in certain churches uh, that, that has to be corrected. But that's not what he's talking about. Gnosticism is the idea that uh, we're to promote spiritual things and we're to not promote material things. And so what, what is happening here is he's not saying the above things are spiritual and earthly things are physical and spiritual is good and physical is bad, so avoid physical. He's not saying, uh, you know, just sort of escape from the world and go up on a mountain and meditate all day, every day, and that's godliness. He's not saying to avoid material things. He's not saying to avoid the world and to sort of, that would be sort of mystically pursue spiritual things. And the reason we know that is because if you read the rest of the chapter, he's going to show here's what happens when you set your mind on things above and not on things of the earth. And his examples are, it's going to change your marriage. So to live this way affects how husbands and wives live together. It affects how parents and kids live together. He's going to address that. That's earthy stuff. That's not ethereal, spiritual stuff. And if you're married or have kids, you know that's about as earthy and as real as it gets. You're not floating around in some kind of spiritual uh, mumbo jumbo. It's real stuff. And he's saying, if you will set your mind on things above, it will affect your marriage, your parenting. It'll affect your job, he says. It'll affect how you relate to your employer or it will affect how you manage employees. He says it will, it will affect how you relate to outsiders, he's going to say in the next chapter. So this is not just sort of living in some kind of spiritual, uh, you know, uh, floaty kind of a deal where you're detached from life. He's not talking about that at all. Seeking Christ and setting your mind on things above actually empowers you to engage real life, not to disengage from real life. So it empowers us to engage our responsibilities. So if, that, if what I'm saying is true based on the rest of the chapter, then why does he appear to be down on the things of earth? He says, set your minds, verse two, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. So he seems to be down on things of the earth. Why would he say that? 
And then later in the chapter, talk about things on the earth, like your marriage and your job and all this kind of stuff. Why does he do that? Well, it's because when he uses the phrase things on the earth, he's not just talking about physical things. Look at verse five. This tells us what he's talking about. Verse five, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, and goes on. We go on to anger and slander and all kinds of stuff. He's using things of the earth to describe patterns from our old life. Things above, that's the pattern of your new life. That's Christ, your new life. Things of earth, that's stuff from your old life, sinful patterns and habits of our old life. So the heavenly and earthly contrast is not spiritual versus physical, it's old versus new. You've been raised with Christ, that's your new life. So live there. You're dead to sin. That's the things of earth. Don't go back there. Live your new life is what he is saying right here. You previously were oriented this way, the old life. Now you have a new orientation towards Jesus. So seek him. That means recognize who you are in Christ. Pursue your new life. Pursue resurrection power. Pursue the things that are above. Where Christ, how does Christ live? If your new life is in Christ, how does he live? Pursue the love that Christ demonstrates towards us and others. Live out your life with a new mindset of representing Christ in the world, being a city set on a hill, a light in the darkness. Um, Have Christ's heart in you. What does that look like? That's the fruit of the Spirit which he produces in us. Set your mind on the things that are like Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, and how those are all expressed in daily life. Not disengaged from daily life, but taking Christ, your identity, your connection, your communion in life with Christ into all of life. It's engaging all of life in a new way, with a new power and a new mindset, with a new savior that you're united to. You're with him, you raised with him into new life. Uh, Verse three, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See this contrast again, old world, new world, old life, new life, dead, alive. Now your life is hidden with Christ in God. So since we've been raised with him, our life is in him. We have resurrection power. Ephesians speaks of it that way. We have resurrection power. We have a power we didn't have before with the spirit living in us. We have a power that we didn't have before Jesus was raised from the dead. And that's how this contrasts with the the, the false teachers. Because legalism, sort of keeping some rules that you either create or that God does not hold you to, rules that you have to make yourself right with God, those kind of rules will never produce the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, all the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. These things are not produced by you gritting your teeth and keeping rules. They're produced by Christ in you. They're produced by the Spirit of God in you. They're produced by your union with Christ. They're produced by... uh, John says, abiding in the vine. He is the vine, we are the branches. So it's as we're connected to him, life flows through us. That is what he's talking about. Uh, Mystical visions can't give you a new motive or desire to live for the Lord or love for others. Being in Christ gives you that. 
Um, you, you, you can't get power to change. You can't get uh, sort of a changed heart through asceticism. You can't restrict yourself in some crazy way that God's not calling you to do. You can't punish yourself in some physical way and by that have a greater heart of love and a greater awareness of Christ. No, you'll have a greater awareness of yourself and what you're doing to try to please the Lord. But union with Christ is a new heart. It's Christ. It's, uh, we're with Christ. We're in Christ. But also it's Christ in us. In a fabulous book, I think it came out in 2016. It's my favorite book of 2016. It's called Union that I read in 2016. It's called Union with Christ. It's by a guy named Rankin Wilborn. And uh, in there, he points out what this is like by referring to the old movie. And I'm dating myself a bit here. But um, the old movie, Rudy. You guys ever see Rudy? Uh, Rudy, I was, I, I was freaked out because Rudy was like later, uh, Rudy was later Sam in Lord of the Rings. And I just couldn't connect that. How is Sam in Lord, I mean, how are Sam and Rudy the same guy? There's acting for you, but it's the power of acting. So anyway, forget Lord of the Rings. That's not the illustration. So he says in Rudy, so Rudy is this little guy. I mean, he's later a hobbit. So he's really a little guy. So Rudy, okay, forget it. Rudy not Rudy the Hobbit. Okay, forget. Rudy is a guy who goes to Notre Dame and he is small of stature and has a somewhat limited athletic ability, but he loves Notre Dame football and he wants to play on the Notre Dame uh, you know, football team ultimately. And this guy tries harder than anyone. And so he will, he will get beat up and knocked down and man, he just keeps coming. There is a fire in his belly, you could say, for Notre Dame football. And he wants to be a player more than anything. And yet, well, God didn't grant him the physical uh, stature to play uh, college football. But at one point, the coach sees how hard Rudy tries. And this is what the coach says to Rudy. I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. I wish God would put your heart in some of my players' bodies. And Wilborn writes this, that is exactly what God has done for us. He has taken the heart of Christ and placed it in all his players. Do you see what power we have? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. This is radically different. Grit your teeth and, and, and keep rules. Try to have a mystical experience and maybe make one up if you don't have it. Be harsh on your body. That's one way to grow in, that's purportedly to grow in godliness. He says, that's not it. It's Christ in you. It's Christ putting his heart in you. It's communion with him so that you're seeking him. You're connected to him. And somehow through this, he is changing our hearts so that we will be what he's already declared us to be, risen in Christ, declared righteous. Seek Christ. Now, admittedly, this is a little hard to get our head around. I mean, most of Colossians is. I mean, it, I keep saying it gets a little simpler. It really does. Some of it gets a little bit easier to understand uh, as we, we go. Like one of the verses is, husbands love your wives. I mean, that's, that's a lot clearer than, uh, than sort of mystical things about like I'm in the heavenlies, exalted, seated with Christ, okay? Some of it's hard to get our head around some of that. But, but I think to be very practical, we just have to start by saying, God, would you give, just to pray, God, would you give me a mindset that my mind is, is pursuing you and what you've done for me 
and what my identity is in you so that I am starting to live motivated and empowered by your heart, which is in me, by your spirit, by your word, that I want to be changed from the inside out. And so I'm asking you, God, to change me and make me aware of this. Help me not forget this. Maybe you need to memorize this passage or something so that I'm, I, or Galatians 2.20, which I just read, so that we are, we are thinking in this way. This is why it is really important that we're having regular intake of the scripture, regular exposure to the scripture, not as a legalistic thing. I'm not saying that if you read your Bible every day, that, I'm, that that's a guarantee that you did enough now that you have earned growth. That's legalism. It's rather exposing yourself to Jesus. It's exposing yourself to the truth of who he is and what he's done for you. And as that happened, as we behold him, 2 Corinthians 3 says, we are changed. We are transformed from glory to glory. As we behold him, our our hearts are molded to be more like him and to live like him. That's why someone has said, we are becoming what we are beholding. And if we're never beholding Christ, if we're never thinking of him, if we're never connected to him through his word, if we're never pausing in the the frantic busyness of life and thinking about who he is and what he's done for us, then we'll never become what he's already declared us to be. So it's that sort of thing. It's, It's thinking. It's throughout the day. Again, it's not meditating on a mountain 24-7 every day. It's in the stuff of life, pausing throughout our day, having certain Uh, habits in our day where we're pausing to think of Christ, to think of his word, to think of what he's done for us, to either if it's just call out a prayer of dependence, God, I need you right now. I need you. Even that. I have a friend who for a while had this alarm set on his phone. We'd be somewhere or talking or in a meeting or something. It would just go off. I forget what it was. Like this like heavenly kind of music. It was kind of heavenly thing. Like, what is that? Like what are you setting the heaven alarm for? He's like, well, I just had that set. So whenever that happens, I just sort of think about the Lord. And I think, well, that may help you think about the Lord. But like it's gone off three times in this meeting. And it's making me think about the world, the flesh, and the devil, because I'm getting irritated. Just turn that thing off. <laughs> yeah, turn that thing off. But why is this keeping going on? But if that, if that help, whatever, I don't care what it is. If it's setting an alarm, great, great. Okay, what's the alarm for? I'm going to pause for um, 60 seconds. And in the middle of this, I am going to think about a scripture, think about whatever it is. Whether it's having something in the morning, whether it's doing something at your lunchtime, whether it's uh, having a, a conversation around the dinner table about the Lord. It's just this regular communion of who he is, what he's done. It doesn't mean you don't do your job. It should inspire you to do better in your job. If you're setting your heart and your mind on the new life in Christ, you'll be the best employee at the place. You won't be checking out, oh, I can't, can't depend on her, can't depend on him. They're just like spiritually floating around, detached from all reality. No, you'll be the best there because you are serving your master, the Lord, and you are empowered by him and reflecting his character. Thinking of him, it's what Jesus calls abiding in him. That's the, that's the Jesus Bible word, abiding in the vine. We're the branches. He's the vine. We are by abiding in him. It's conscious recognition that I'm in Christ. I'm connected with Christ. I've died to an old way. I'm raised to a new life, and I'm connected, seated with him. 
That's how we can sort of apply this. And that also means that we need to think about what distracts me. What are the things that distract me where I can go 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours without considering Christ and who he is and what he's done? What are the things that are distracting me? I want to address those so that I can seek him, so that I can set my affections on him, so I can set my mind on the new life that I have in Christ. Secondly, and these last two points are much shorter, we not only seek Christ, but we kill the old life. So you've been buried with Christ in baptism. You've been baptized and raised to new life when you believed in Jesus Christ. And uh, so the old, you know, the old, uh, the, your old person was, died with Christ, was baptized, was drowned under the water. And I know we all feel like, man, but that old, that old life sure can swim, <laughs> put under the water, but it sure is swimming and, and gasping and trying, you know, to come to life. But we have to reckon ourselves dead. Look at verse five. We have to kill the old life. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. So he's talking about, here was your old life, Colossians. And these, these uh, sins are listed kind of in two groups, sexual sins and sins of, well, sins of the heart, which show forth, I think, in speech is kind of what he's talking about here. So why do these sins make the list? Maybe you are exploring the Bible and you go, well, that's about what I expected. As soon as we get a sin list, sex is the first thing mentioned. Is God really down on sex? No, God is not down on sex. God created sex. Uh, God created the pleasure of, of sex. That was his idea, not yours or someone else's, uh, which if you're not a believer, that alone should cause you to investigate this God who is wondrous, who thought that up uh, and gave you the experience, the ability to experience that pleasure, that in itself is worth, maybe I should check that God out before I dismiss him. But the reason that he starts with sexual sins is because that's the culture they came out of. Look what he says. It's not just that he wants to pick on sexual sins. He says, verse seven, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. So Colossae, the whole Greco-Roman world had a very um, promiscuous ethic towards sex in their culture. Um, probably even uh, more promiscuous than ours would be. Um, even though our, we, we are, you know, our culture has moved to in, increasingly, um, uh, you know, freer, looser sexual standards culturally, um, and at the same time has sort of raised the cultural value of tolerance to tolerate anyone and everyone's uh, sort of personal practices. So we live in a culture that where, uh, you know, most anything goes uh, sexually, but probably more, they lived in one that would have even been uh, freer sexually. So he's saying, now that you are a Christian, that was your old life. That was your old life. You lived an immoral life. Uh, sexual immorality is kind of the catch-all Bible term for uh, sex uh, outside of marriage, uh, marriage between one man and one woman. So that would be the biblical understanding of that sort of catch-all term. So it could include everything from a, adultery to two single people 
um, having sex, or any broad, broad sexual sins uh, would be under that umbrella, sexual immorality, sex that occurs uh, between people who are not one man and one woman in a marriage relationship. Impurity, passion, evil desire, these are all related to that. Covetousness, some scholars say it could be sexual covetousness in that category, what's sexual covetousness? Sexual covetousness would be like lust. Desi- covetousness is desiring something God has not provided me. So I could covet someone's car, but the 10th commandment also also says, do not covet your neighbor's wife. So you could covet somebody's uh, husband, somebody's wife, and want them sexually when you don't have a relationship with them that would uh, validate sex with them, meaning you're not married with them to them. So that's the way you used to live. But it's so interesting. He doesn't just say, stop being so bad, you lustful Colossians, you're just filthy, the all of you. I mean, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying, that's what characterized your life when you were dead. So, so don't live the dead life. Live the, a live life in Christ. That is the appeal here. He does say God's judgment is coming against these sins. And, and so that is a motive as well. We, we certainly want to be aware of God's holiness uh, I, I don't think the job of the church is primarily to uh, police the culture of unbelievers, police them morally. I don't think that's our responsibility. But when we bring the gospel to people, we do need to tell them God's standard of holiness and do need to tell them what God views as sin. And God is going to judge all sin and the holy, righteous, godly, pure anger against sin will be expressed in his judgment. It's being expressed now, Romans 1 says, by letting people go their own way. That's actual judgment. Did you know that? Romans 1 says, judgment in life right now is letting people do whatever they want, especially without consequences in the current life. That You are under the judgment of God. That, that is the unrevealing of the judgment of God when he just lets people do what they want to do. Um, But there's coming an eternal judgment. So we want to tell people, if you don't know Christ, I must tell you, that's what the Bible says. And the most loving thing I could do is tell you that, that you will stand before God and give an account for your life. And we tell you that because we love you and we want you to experience real life now, new life in Christ, which we're talking about today. Um, but but that, is, that is coming. So, but that's not even ultimately pr- sort of his primary point here. His primary point is God's going to judge the old life, the old order, the fallen creation, the fallen people, but you're in the new, new life. Uh, you're in the new order. You are uh, in Christ, raised with him. So that's why you don't want to go back to that. You used to live in that, but no longer. It's, it's also worth noting that when he does the sin list, he not only just talks about things like sexual immorality, but what else did they used to do? Well, he kicks into anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. So slander and obscene talk is probably talking hurtfully to people or about people. Sinfully speaking, to people or about people. And, and anger and wrath, those are the attitudes that animate that kind of speech. So don't speak to people in angry ways. Express wrath towards them. Uh, It's not your job to have vengeful wrath against people, malice towards people, talking about them, spreading things about them, speaking untruthfully about them to harm them, harm their reputation. So so it's worth noting that it's not just a sin list of sex sins, but there's also things like speaking ill of people. Equally, God will bring uh, judgment for those things. And so the same way, this is the way you used to live. He's not just saying, don't be angry. He's saying, you have a new identity. 
And your new identity is not wrathful towards people. Your new identity is in Christ. Uh, You're called to love them. You're called to love them. And so that's why when we live this way as Christians, it's, it's, it's not just we're breaking some rules, though we are, but it's that we're not living true to who God's called us to be. He's given us new life for a purpose, not that we live the old life, but that we live the new life. So it's living a false identity. Your new identity is living in Christ, and we can live in Christ or we can live like we never met him. And, and so we want to live like we have met him. The last point is that we're not only to kill the old life, we're to live the new life, which is kind of the point I'm making right here. Look at verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self. Again, that is the point. It's wrong to lie. It's against the Ten Commandments to lie. It's in the Bible rules, okay, not to lie. But the reason is, the reason is you're in Christ and Jesus isn't a liar, you're in Christ and he speaks the truth. And so you've put off the old self. Lying's the old world, you're the new self. So you're being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So here he's also talking about not only your new life, but your new community. And the reason I say that is look at verse nine. Do not lie to one another. So to live the new life means that once you're raised to new life, you're connected to God's people in community. And so we as a community are to live a new life together. Not like Jesus never came and died and rose, but that he came and died and rose and his spirit's in the church and we're united to him. And that's beginning to slowly affect how we live because we are being renewed in the knowledge of our creator. So you have a new life. You don't live it perfectly, but you are beginning to be renewed and live it more and more and more. So the secret to growth and godliness is the renewal that comes, play, comes by recognizing our new life, depending on Christ for our new life, and identifying ourselves with Christ, our new identity. We're renewed in the knowledge of, it, of our creator. We're, when we baptize people, we, we quote Romans 6. And when they come out of the water, we say, you are raised to walk in newness of life. That's what he's saying here. You're being renewed in your new life. I love this. Our new identity affects not only how we view Christ, but how we view others. Look at verse 11. Here, where is here? Well, in Christ, the new, the new self, as God's people, here... There is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised. What is he saying? He's saying in your new life, there are not religious barriers. You're all in Christ. That's what he says in verse 4. Christ is, I'm sorry, in verse 11, Christ is all and is in all. So there's not circumcised or circumcised Jew and Greek. We're all in Christ. So there's no religious barriers in the church. If you're in Christ, we are all one. That's so important. That is new life thinking. If you're judging people based on their religious background in the church, you're looking down on some people, you're promoting other people because of their backgrounds, that is old world, dead, previous life thinking. That's not, new, that's not the new life. Uh, also, there's neither barbarian or Scythian. Uh, barbarian and Scythian, this is, this is talking about uh, sort of cultural barriers. So there are no cultural uh, barriers um, uh, that, that separate us in the church. These were people that were looked down upon. Barbarians, 
were people that were viewed as uncultured. And the, the, it's the, the word is that, what is it like when you say a word and it sounds like, what is that onomatopoeia? That's what that word is. In Greek, it was barbarian. They imitated people by saying bar, 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 bar. Like you're talking very basic. And so that's where they got the name, barbarian. You're a barbarian because you speak like a dumb, uneducated person, basically, is what they're saying. So they're saying, in the church, we don't, we don't look at the elite and the sophisticated and the educated and somehow say they're special. There's no barbarians in the church. Scythians as well. They, Scythians were a, uh, they were kind of nomadic shepherds. So they were like people, maybe in the modern world, they'd be called like gypsies or something. They traveled around and didn't have a home. And they were, they did uh, shepherding, which was a low, very low profession, a low job, wouldn't have been a profession, but a low job, a menial task. And so he's saying, don't look down on people for like what their job is or what their background, you know, like they're traveling around in some way. We, we're not, you, we don't have, you're, you're not some hot shot because you came from a different background. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Everybody's a sinner and we need Jesus. So there's not some people with a religious pedigree that we're going to respect more. There's not some people that are more cultured or more educated that we can look down on someone else. None of us can look down on someone else and say, well, they don't, you know, they just don't have the same background that I do. Uh, I look down on them. And then there's neither slave nor free. So slavery was widely practiced in the Greco-Roman world. We've, we've taught about that when we went through Corinthians, I think, but uh, it was widely practiced. It wasn't like chattel slavery in the South, in the U.S. It wasn't, um, if there's levels of evil, it wasn't as evil as the American practice where people were owned indefinitely. Um, it was oftentimes a debt slavery where somebody paid off their debt by working for free for someone in essence, but it was still a bad system. It was still an evil system. It was still a system where people lost their rights. And so maybe the gospel came into somewhere and both someone who's working off their debt and the, the person that's owed the money both get saved and come into the church. And he said, there's no distinction. We're not saying, oh, this person's a slave and that person's, uh, you know, the one who owns them or manages them or whatever the term would have been in Greco-Roman slavery. Uh, We're all equal here in Christ. So there's no sort of barrier. It wasn't wasn't a racial thing in the Greco-Roman world, but there's no barrier between slave and free. There would be no racial barrier. There is no cultural barrier. There is no um, religious barrier. There aren't levels in the church. He's saying, hey, church, look, you are joined to Christ, but so is every one of your brothers and sisters. You're not more in Christ than they are. Uh, they're not, you're not more in the heavenlies than they are, seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. So it's not like, well, you're kind of on his lap and everybody else is just kind of trying to get a gaze at the throne, but you're so special given your religious pedigree or your education or your race or your background or your knowledge or whatever it is. No, everybody's in Christ who's in Christ. And so treat every, so don't lie to one another. Don't mistreat each other because you're all in Christ. Do you see how this is different than just be nice? This is, look at who we are. So we live out our, we're called to live out this new identity. The secret to Christian growth is being who you already are. How do we do that? We seek him, we put our mind on him and the new life he's called us to. We kill the old life, that is we recognize that's not who we are and we turn from that. We put on the new life. Uh, In that process, we help one another and that's one of the reasons we have small groups is we help each other 
grow, help each other kill the old life and live in the new life. We remind each other of these truths, these realities. We pray for each other. We bear one another's burdens. We help each other grow in this way. That's what the church is all about. And it's all tied to our identity. The false teachers put heavy stuff on the Colossians. You got to keep religious rules. You got to keep a bunch of laws that we're going to tell you that Jesus didn't tell you. You got to have visions. You got to deprive your body. You got to treat your body severely. And Paul says in verse 23, that has no value, 223, that has no value in stopping the flesh. None of that works. Well, what works, Paul? If you say in verse 23, none of that works, what's the next verse? If you've been raised with Christ. What works? Resurrection. That's what works. Being resurrected with Christ, receiving new life, the Spirit of God living in us, focusing on Him and what He's done. Their laws were such bondage, but here God gives such freedom. Such freedom. This morning at 7.30, I wrote the last few sentences of my message, which I'm at right now. During the worship service, someone from the congregation came up to the mic and told me almost verbatim the last point of my message that I wrote down this morning. It was uncanny. She said, I feel like the Lord put on my heart this, and it's exactly what I had written for the end of my message this morning. I said, well, I'm going to camp on that point. I think that's important and pray for people struggling in this way. You can't win God's approval. That's the last point. You can't win God's approval by doing all that stuff that the false teachers recommended. You already have God's approval in Christ. And the reality is that some of us feel like we don't have God's approval. And when you feel like you don't have God's approval, you don't see yourself in Christ. And really, there's a couple things that can happen when you don't feel like you have God's approval. You can either work harder for it, which leads nowhere, or this person shared with me, you can run from God because of that. That's, that's the other thing you can do. Okay, I could never win his approval. I give up. I'm going the other direction. And being in Christ is all about resting and living in the approval you already have because of what Jesus has done. When you really grasp your new identity in Christ, that's where real life change becomes. Because you once you sense that approval, you run to a God that welcomes you in Jesus. You don't run from God if you feel loved by him. You don't try to get away from God if you feel approved by him. If you feel his favor, you run to him. And it's when we take our identity in ourselves, we'll either work harder in legalism or we'll run because we give up. But it's when we recognize we're in Christ, we'll come to him. Can you feel the freedom of being in Christ and the acceptance that comes from that versus the exhaustion that comes from trying to work hard enough to win his acceptance. In the book I mentioned earlier about uh, Union with Christ by Rankin Wilborn, he gives this very, very earthy illustration of what it means to be in Christ and the freedom it brings. So if you're wrestling with acceptance in Christ, listen to what we've been saying here and listen to this illustration. He says, I have a friend who used to be Mickey Mouse. She was the person inside the costume at Disneyland. Reflecting on her time in Mickey, she said, 
Growing up, I thrived on behavior modification. I thought if I'm good, I will be loved. If I'm bad, I will be rejected. My core beliefs were that I was not worthy. I was not accepted or loved. So I would clamor and manufacture ways to elicit the positive responses I wanted from people. When I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response times a hundred. She felt safe and loved, covered in Mickey's righteousness. <laughs> you just see kids running to her, everybody loving her. But she also gained a new sense of what it means to be in Christ. This is another way to picture what it means for you to be in Christ. You are completely safe and hidden in him. He represents you before the Father. He covers you. Your sin, your shame, your weakness. He covers you in a very real way, not as temporary fiction. Being in Mickey or any other mask we hide behind is to masquerade in a false identity. But being in Christ is to discover our true God-given identity. You are alive in him, moving with him through this world, clothed in all his benefits and blessings. You are in Christ. To be found in Christ means you don't have to prove yourself anymore. Your frantic attempts to find or craft an acceptable identity or your tireless work to manage your own reputation, these are over and done. You can rest in Christ. You don't have to be intimidated by anyone ever. Who are you? You are in Christ, he writes, and you no longer need to fear the judgment of God. When God looks at you, he sees you hidden in Christ. This is freedom. This is confidence. This is good, good news, he writes. The next time, the, the reason I love that illustration, a lot of reasons it really affected me. The reason I love that illustration, one reason is the next time you go to Disneyland or Disney World and see someone in one of those, you might think about being in Christ. It's better than that little alarm, heavenly alarm my friend had. You'll go and you'll remember, oh yes, I'm in Christ. Just as, as that person who feels so accepted in that false mask of a, a charade, I am really genuinely accepted in Christ. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.